I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 27, Jesse and the Super Brat. <sighs> I guess there's a super brat in this book. I guess. In passing yeah. mention only. <laughs> yeah. Do you have your one sentence summary? I do. Okay. My one sentence summary is... Child star returns to Stony Brook. Jesse auditions for a ballet. Kid leaves again. <laughs> it's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's more like an Anne one sentence summary, I feel like. It's like very factual. <laughs> well, that's because it was a snooze fest. There was literally the o- that was the only way to write a sentence summary of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, sorry, everybody. We didn't love this book. If we have any really Spoil. huge jesse and the super brat fans out there you may want to skip this episode we're not or we're not like please explain why you like yeah. it because <laughs> i'm yeah. genuinely confused <laughs> right to us do add us let us know because yeah we, we, we need some comprehension yeah <laughs> mine is jesse sits for a child star a bunch of the stony brook kids freak out about fame and also he lacks social skills like i don't like it's not a good summary I don't know. I'm also we'll we'll circle back to your last point because I'm not even sure that's true. Right. I mean, it wasn't well established, but okay. Yeah. And those are our only uh sentence summaries for today. Unfortunately, we're flying flying I was gonna say flying solo, but how do you fly <laughs> flying double without yeah. Anne? <laughs> yeah, we're flying Anne-less. She couldn't make it today. We'll hopefully have her with us next week. So you are stuck with us. Who are we? Wait, wait. We should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. <laughs> I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist. kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And Anne, our mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth, who's a pop culture writer, is not with us today. But we will, we will try to come up with Annie things to say throughout. Right, Emily? Yeah. I mean, we'll probably be a little boring without Anne, frankly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but maybe that's well suited to this book, actually, because yeah. it looks so boring. It'll be on theme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about all three of us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, please, please, please rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, commentary about anything BSC related, please drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. What a snooze fest. Not you, the book. Sorry. (laughs) Ouch. Sorry. I tried to sound peppy. (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking even back to the summaries, like how little plot there really was to summarize. It's like, okay, this kid moves back to Stony Brook. He's famous on some show called, what's the name of the show? PS 162, which I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid because on the West Coast, we don't call things public school 162. Right. Well, that's actually interesting. It's definitely a New York City thing, yeah. right? So so then do we think this show is ostensibly set in New York City, but this kid who grew up in Stony Brook, Connecticut has to fly to LA to film it? Yes. I think that's that insane. Is <laughs> yeah, because Jesse says it's a it's a inner city school. Um, oh that the that it takes place at when we get the establishing shots of PS one sixty two. 
I did think it was interesting, too, how much time she spends setting up the show and, like, how diverse it is and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, that has nothing, no bearing on the rest of the book whatsoever. No bearing on anything except it has a cute black boy that Becca has a crush on. Yeah. Or poor Becca languishing away in Stony Brook, Connecticut. The only black kid she can meet is on television. Yeah. Wow. Um, but you're right. It, the, 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 plot, the idea of the show is very much in Anna Martin's diversity uh, promotion wheelhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Jesse says it's an inner city elementary school and the class includes all different kinds of kids. Um, in the class, and she talks a lot about Lamont there, who's smart, funny, and good looking. And then there are also Latin kids, Asian kids, and white kids. And she's, it sort of like implies that there, it's this utopian classroom environment. But that ends on page seven. We never hear anything more about that at all. We just get to hang out with the white kid. He's not even good at science. <laughs> not in real life. See, the thing is, Emily, it's different. Who you play on television is not the same as who you are in real life. What? So Derek is an actor. Oh. His character Waldo knows about science, but he doesn't actually know about science. He knows about acting. Ah, I see. I see. Yes. And auditioning. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is what we learned from this book. Yeah. So the other plot in this book is that Jesse's auditioning for Swan Lake. And somehow those two plots intersect, but not really. Yeah. Well, it's not at her ballet school, right? So she's already done Coppelia. And um, is, you know, very comfortable with Madame Noel. But this is at the Stony Brook Civic Center, which has, you know, real dancers from New York coming. And so the plot is that she's auditioning and she has like three different callbacks. But it's also this very thin plot of her being scared to try. And so she decides to become a model or an actress instead for like five minutes. But not really either. No. She's like not really that scared. Mm Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really consider it, but that's the crux of the drama of this book, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about it, right, is that other people are telling, you know, there's two ways to read that plot, right? Is that putting my psychologist hat on, some of it could be that Jessie's really good at avoidance, which actually wouldn't surprise me um, if she's more of a physical person. If she, Mm -hmm. maybe she is really scared, but she just doesn't want to go there. And so she engages in like some actions, to avoid thinking about it. And, you know, her dad can see that actually she's nervous about the audition, but she may actually not legitimately be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Another way to read it is that she's not that scared, but she's just sort of interested in what Derek had to say. Um, uh, but, but the thing that made it more unbelievable to me is that part of the point of these books being written in alternating first person is that we get to hear from the character why they're doing the things they're doing. And she doesn't even really, if it's outside of her awareness, she doesn't give us other indications that maybe she's nervous about, at least not much. No. And even at the end when she's like, oh, I guess I did want to be in Swan Lake. She just says that in dialogue to her dad. And he's like, yeah, I knew it. But she doesn't even take that up internally. Right. Right. Yeah. There's no reflection on it. And so we don't know if she was being super avoidant or if it wasn't that big of a deal or what. It's hard to say. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing, I'm using a lot of air quotes here. Like the other quote unquote plot is this idea that Derek Masters, who's the actor kid, is having a hard time adjusting back home to Stony Brook. So he grew up in Stony Brook. He did like regional theater or whatever, some 
some commercials filmed in Stamford, which feels really unlikely. Like, why would he not just go to New York? Yeah. Well, we've already established that in the BSC universe, Stamford is much further from New York City than it actually yeah. is. <laughs> right. New York is so far away. Yeah. Um, no one could possibly commute from no. New York to New York City. No. But then he lands this show, PS162, and he moves to L.A., presumably to film the season or whatever. And then they move back with the family. Um, and so he's nervous about coming back after becoming this big star in Hollywood. And so he says that a kid in his class, John is bullying him. And John does all these really terrible things like tie kids shoes together and throw kids backpack contents all over the playground. And, but then we can never find John. We can't, where is John? Isn't John in Nikki's class too? And then it turns out John was made up and Derek was doing those things. But there are like zero consequences from any of that stuff. Like John just right. kind of disappears and the babysitters all sort of wonder where he is. And then he's like, oh yeah, well once I, it was me, but like I started becoming friends with them and then I stopped. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> How is that yeah. a plot? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it could have been better done. <laughs> I think it could have been interesting. I think, you know, it's not unbelievable to me that, it, you know, Derek is also only supposed to be eight. And he certainly doesn't seem like an eight-year-old in these books, uh, this mm-hmm. book at all to me. He seems at least 10 or 12. But um, it's not unbelievable to me that he would have a hard time adjusting. And that uh, given what we've talked about, about how boys are socialized, that he would feel the need to be a tough guy. If he didn't know how to remake friends with people, mm-hmm. right? But there's that one time where Jesse's babysitting and they're at the playground. Or no, Claudia's babysitting him and they're at the playground and then the other boys are there and Claudia invites them over. Yeah. And everyone just comes over and then everything's fine. Yeah. And like if he'd been like freaking assaulting those kids. Why would they just come over and be fine? Yeah. I mean, except maybe because he's famous and they want to see the castle they think he lives in. Well, spoiler alert, he don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I, that, that idea, it's interesting, right? Because even when there are ghostwriters, we'll talk about the ghostwriters in a second. This one is decidedly ghostwritten. Anna Martin plots, plotted out the books, right? So the idea of this kid having a hard time adjusting and like fighting with other kids and being the real super brat, not this fake kid, John, that in and of itself is not a problem to me. I just think it was so like thinly executed that I didn't believe that any of it was happening. Yeah. His like narration of what he was doing too later seems like strange. Say more. He's like, Oh, I, I told you it was someone else because I felt compelled to tell something, but I just couldn't admit my mistakes. And I was like, what the fuck? Like what? Yeah. What eight-year-old yeah. does that? Like, yeah, that was that was pretty overwrought, or at least his like metacognition about it was overwrought, yeah. right? Like, he, I could see an eight-year-old doing that, but being like, I don't know, right? I don't you know. know. I just lied, like, right. yeah. But like that, like, well, let me let me think about my motivation. I mean, I guess it was his acting training that mm-hmm. helped him helped him think about that. Dear Lord, yeah, yeah. It was interesting because I they keep talking about sort of like catching the. What do they call it? I don't know, the fever or something. Everyone oh, gets yeah. all starstruck and then some of the kids want want to be famous themselves and even Jesse sort of toys with this idea of modeling and I the whole time I was like, is this does this really happen to little kids like 
get super starstruck or like really want to be famous. Maybe I don't remember being a kid very well. I think that is a very accurate sentence. (laughs) I don't think you do. (laughs) But I also think it depends. You know, there's two different pieces there, right? There's the starstruck piece and the wanting to be famous yourself piece. Mm -hmm. And I think for some of the younger kids, even like Karen, who's, you know, a pretty sophisticated six, as we've discussed, I think that idea that someone is on your television and then is here in Stony Brook is really mind blowing. Mm hmm. Right. So that part is not hard for me to believe. Like you're in households every day, like all these people know who you are. And now you're here and you're from our town, like from Stony Brook, like Mm -hmm. Stony Brook. Really? You know, I can see them being shocked and amazed by that. That's that's even that part is weird to you. No, I was just yawning because the book was so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. There was no one. No one famous came from Visalia. So (laughs) Is there no one famous from Visalia? I think like Kevin Cosner went to Mount Wendy for one year or oh, something and then like transferred somewhere else. Yeah. That's pretty huge. I guess. I don't care. <laughs> got Lamar Burton and, uh, you know, Tom Hanks went to Sac State for a while. Whoa. Yeah. Tony, Tony, Tony. They're from Sacramento. I don't know who Tony, Tony, Tony is. <laughs> this is not going to work without Anne. <laughs> right. It's just going to be me naming things from the 80s. and you That know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> cake. You know Cake. They're from Sacramento. I do know Cake. Yeah. See, there you go. The band, not the dessert. Yes. No. The dessert yeah. is not from Sacramento. <laughs> cake predates the establishment of Sacramento, California. Does it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it does. But but in terms of like wanting to be famous yourself, I don't, you know, this is 1989. I think you're right. I need Anne to talk to. Audience, mm-hmm. you're sitting in for Anne. There were a lot of shows uh, where people talk to the camera around this time. Like the mm-hmm. ones starring girls that come to mind immediately, like Punky Brewster talked to the camera occasionally. There's Clarissa Explains It All. Blossom comes out not too long after this. And there were, you know, Doogie Howser talked to the camera. Some, like there were boy ones too. I was less interested in those. Um, so I feel like that idea of like your own or like Parker Lewis can't lose Ferris Bueller's day off, that kind of thing. People looking at um, looking at the camera and kind of like being like, oh, it's just my, I'm just like this cool quirky person. And here's my life. Like that was appealing to me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like being in something like, I don't know, 90210 or, the OC or something like that would not have been appealing to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I feel like Karen wants to be in 90210. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but PS 162, it's in an elementary school, right? So it's probably also easier for the kids to picture themselves. Like they're right. not like the one kid on an adult sitcom or like a kid in a different family on a family sitcom. It's like in yeah. school with your friends. Is there any data on like how many kids really want to be famous? No. Or like... I, I mean, why kids want to or whatever? No, that's interesting. Why kids want to. I, I tried to look up even data just on child stars and the effect of fame on kids. And it's sort of a data-free zone. I think that, yeah. the, you know, social sciences are like, yeah, you you figure that out, Hollywood. That's not, that's not yeah, fun. Yeah, have fun. Well, because I think that's just, those two things seem related to me a bit, right? Like how interested kids are in fame mm-hmm. would have some bearing on like how many kids then go on to like audition for things. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and then I know there's some complicated kind of like dance mom territory to wade into, right. Like how much of it is really, how much, how often are the kids really the catalyst for 
uh, a show business career as opposed to the parents. And I'm sure there's maybe not actually the stuff on like that kind of um, those kinds of relationships uh, or that phenomena. But yeah, I think that would be more likely probably in anthropology or sociology to be written about. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't find anything like that in terms of psychology because the, I think the N is, you know, the, the too small. It's too small. It's hard to, yeah. to make generalizations. Um, but I do think you're right. There's a bunch. It's really multifactorial, right? Because even if a kid super wants to be famous, if they don't have it goes both directions, right? Like the dance mom stereotype is it's really about what the parent wants and not about what the kid wants. But there's, I'm sure there are kids that desperately want to do this whose parents like A, don't have the connections and B, don't have the time or the inclination, right? Like Derek's family is literally moving back and forth between California and Stony Brook as one example. Or even that moment when Derek's like, well, you have to get headshots and Jesse's like, do those cost money? And he's like, yeah, but you make it back on your first job, right? Like right. the disposable income to get headshots in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's there. But, you know, the 80s loved a, you know, child star story. I mean, mm-hmm. I can remember really vividly being in a vacation house somewhere and reading the People magazine article of how Drew Barrymore started using cocaine when she was like nine years old or something like that. And like, poor thing, like she was in this People article when she was probably like 12 or 13. I'll Mm -hmm. see if I can find it. But, you know, we we like to watch a child star of the 70s and 80s, you know, fall down and crash as a society, which is like pretty miserable. But I think we also knew, I, I think children didn't have as many advocates in the entertainment industry. And so it was like trying to make a kid act like an adult um, mm-hmm. in a way that I'm assuming is not the case now. I mean, we don't know any of them personally, but like, for instance, the girls in the Babysitter's Club show on Netflix, based on their Instagram, seem very well balanced and like lovely individuals that are not, you know, working their asses off. Whereas I think a lot of times kids in Hollywood in the 80s were sort of thrown in and, you know, not not given much support in terms of being famous and people yeah. knowing who you were and things oh, like that. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. It's interesting now that we were talking sort of opening with the premise of the show, I'm thinking about the kind of like, you know, the thinking about the Hollywood Reagan connection a little differently, right? That mm-hmm. maybe the show that is this sort of like multicultural <laughs> like paradise that's sort of demonstrative of like this really kind of hollow you know 80s version of equa- mm-hmm. social equality or something like that <laughs> right, I, right. well I wouldn't know because the show doesn't get explored anymore but <laughs> right <laughs> there's right, potentially right. something to unpack there re- related to the kind of like the intertwinement of the the Reagan and the Hollywood of it all. We'll say a little bit more about that, about the Reagan and the Hollywood of it all. What do you mean oh, by that? Other than he was an actor. Right. Well, there's just a lot of, um, not a lot, but a, an area of scholarly kind of political theory that talks about how rampant the kind of anti-communist uh, like Hollywood era of Reagan was and like how mm-hmm. kind of intricately um, interwoven the sort of domestic politics were with what Hollywood was doing sort of politically at the time Mm -hmm. and how Reagan sort of marshaled the power and the, of the movies, right. As, and kind of like fame and glamour as a way to um, sort of portray communism in this particular light and to 
bolster mm-hmm. a particular kind of version of what Americanism was as against communism. Mm-hmm. And so the role that Hollywood had in sort of, you know, facilitating that particular notion of, of what America, what America is and what being American looks like mm-hmm. um, and like how that then gets reflected back in the kind of concrete material politics of the time is like something that political theorists have, have tracked. Interesting. Interesting. So sort of using, using, the stories that we told through the movies to prop up the Cold War and reinforce like what it really means to be American versus evil and collectivist and all of those other things. Yeah. And like, I think there's both the explicit kind of overt political messaging in certain films that were about right communists and the threat of communism. And then coupled with the kind of gloss over like the, kind of middle, you know, aspirational upper middle class, like white picket fence, sort of nuclear family thing that we've talked about in other episodes and how Mm -hmm. those two kind of images work together across genres to, you know, build this particular kind of um, Americanism or whatever. But yeah, but there's like, not even any of that in this book, right? Like where the, (laughs) the Hollywood, the Hollywood like, thing is so again thin it's just like this Mm. famous kid we get one kind of glimpse into the show that he's on which which maybe is kind of doing that reagan hollywood thing but we don't really know and then Mm -hmm. like jesse for a second thinks about maybe going that route and then is like nah ballet is the thing for me and then the kid moves back to la yeah yeah no it's I'm not arguing with you. Um, so let's let's punch up this book, Emily. How would you make it? Like, how would you make it more of a stuck in Stony Brook version? Because I think I don't know. Is this? We should probably continue to assess this. But is this our least favorite so far? I feel like this is the lowest point for me so far in the series. Yeah, I, I would say the same. Even okay. even with some of the weirder ones, at least I've had more to like be angry about. Right, which keeps us entertained. We like we like to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just nothing. Okay, so yeah. so so far, two super specials in and twenty seven books down. This is the worst book of the series so far for me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Anne's not here, so she doesn't get a vote. So if you're gonna punch it up and make it a a more of a stuck in Stony Brook book, if you're gonna like highlight some of that, um, you know, myth of of diversity and melting pot action or or anything else what would you do to make this book better and more interesting oh man i mean i feel like we need we would need to have more glimpses of the kid star like actually being a dick Mm -hmm. to people and like he would need to experience some consequences for that sure sure but you don't want him to go to jail (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. Like social consequences, right? Like he's going to have to learn some lessons about mm. not being a dick. Yeah. Some Betsy Sobat consequences. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But then I'm like, then because it's a Jesse book, you wade into the territory of like Jesse again, like assuming these insane responsibilities of having to be like totally perfect in every way and sort of like saving everything. Every time. Yeah, she wasn't magical in this book, that's for sure. No, I think she actually, weirdly, even though this was the most boring book, this is a book where, like, she's allowed to be sort of, you know, fallible and like a normal mm-hmm. kid. Um, But I still, but we still don't get too much meat from, from her, right? Like, she's not mm-hmm. even, we're missing some, some of her internal life, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what what other stuff would you like to see from PS162 to either complain about? Or what if it wasn't, um, you know, what if it actually was like a revolutionary show? What would you want to see depicted? Whoa. Okay. This is a, this, this is my idea for a show. The kids fight. It's an inner city school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. They like put together some sort of community program against gentrification in their neighborhood. And then they like run their school cooperatively. They take it over and then they're like, this is going to be, we're going to share in the governance of our school. And then they, but it's still fictional. So it doesn't shatter the the late eighties veneer. We're into HW Bush's territory here. I guess not. (laughs) Yeah. It gets yanked off the air pretty quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Derek <laughs> moves home to Stony Brook permanently because his show got canceled because it was too yeah. provocative. Yeah and, then, yeah, and then he's like a dick to everyone, and he's got to learn some lessons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess if I was going to punch it up, I just want the psychology to be a little better. Like it seems very mm-hmm. simplistic. Like he doesn't fit in, so he fights, and then it's okay, and then they see that he doesn't live in a big house, and everybody's fine. Like, I would just want, I would want more of Jesse's internal life, like you're saying, but also more of Derek's internal life. Yeah. Yeah, I also think there's a bit of a disjuncture between, like, how he is to Jesse and how he, the things that he says that he does when he's bullying other kids. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems so implausible, because yeah. he's so chill. Yeah. So chill, and, like, kind of sweet, and like observant and thoughtful. And then he's like, and then he has that meta, you know, narration of his own behavior. And it's just like, okay, well, if you have all those things, like why would you be doing that behavior to begin with? Yeah. Well, I mean, that certainly happens where kids are uneven. I mean, I work with teens who are incredibly insightful after Mm -hmm. the fact of Mm -hmm. why they did really ineffective, terrible things to their peers. But in the moment they don't have that insight. Right. Um, but even yeah, I guess I just think he that. seems thoughtful before and after. It's not right. just a, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe we're not really getting the chronology of things very well in this book either. Well, I blame Jan Carr. <laughs> <laughs> Esme, tell us, who's Jan Carr? <laughs> this is apparently our second ghost-written book, which I didn't realize, but saw I didn't recently. So Dawn on the Coast was also written, ghost-written by Jan Carr. Um, apparently because at that point, Anna Martin had never been to California, which is amazing wow. to me. Yeah. Um, uh, not, not amazing to me that like everyone should travel, but like she, she grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, like her dad worked for the New Yorker. She, she wasn't, uh, you know, she was upper middle class. Um, and she was a successful, like very successful author by that point by book mm-hmm. 23. So it just surprised me that she wouldn't have been to California then being an East coaster, like that she wouldn't have visited at some point. That's yeah. It. Not that everyone should come here. I mean, you probably should, but you know, um, or everyone. Uh, well, you definitely get, get your <laughs> ass back here, but everyone also, cause it's great. Um, <laughs> I feel like you're really going back and forth here on whether or not you're trying to <laughs> will people to visit this, the great state of California or not. Everyone should visit the golden state. I, you know, we're happy to have you. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I remember Dawn on the Coast being a little weird, but it wasn't um, a snooze fest, as you said. So yeah. this is this is the second and the last book that Jan Carr co-wrote. So um, interesting. I'm sure she's a lovely person, or that he could be he. 
probably mm-hmm. wasn't they in 1989 in the publishing world, although possible. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Jan Carr's lovely. And we didn't like this book. <laughs> you got anything else to say about it? No, so boring. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on to a BSC Big Five? Yeah. I'll make it more interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. So we have a bunch of these. We're backed up. So if you, you write, send us one, we'll get to you eventually. Michelle sent us her information um, in July or August. Um, so like I said, we're backed up. What can you tell me about Michelle, Emily? Okay. Michelle's relationship to school she says, loved it, was a huge nerd, did drama club, and then got my degree in elementary education before asking myself what the fuck I was thinking and changing careers. Amazing. That's a good backstory. <laughs> um, leader versus follower, she says, as a kid, definitely a follower, as an adult, both, depending on the situation. Sounds functional. For fashion and style choices, Michelle says, as a kid, I desperately wanted to be trendy, but landed closer to Blandy. <laughs> and then in junior high, high school, grunge hit, and I was all in on anything baggy that would allow me to hide my body because it was the 90s and we were all insecure. Now, I don't give a fuck. My fashion trend is vintage grandma schoolgirl. Wow. Very good. That's a whole book. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, Michelle got her period in 1991, fifth grade. She says, I was an infant and so embarrassed that anyone would find out. And now because, again, I don't give a fuck, I will tell literally anyone when I have cramps. Excellent. Oh, that's a good sort of like not it's not quite a counterfactual but like which babysitter do we think would go on to be like i'm having cramps <laughs> all the time okay romantic history michelle says crush on the same boy from fourth to tenth grade well it's a long time then a series of crushes on unavailable i.e closeted friends <laughs> then a series of mediocre relationships in my 20s interspersed with going back to an ex so many times because i was dumb Till I met my now husband when he was dressed like a cat stripper at a mutual friend's bachelorette party 10 years ago. Incredible. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Uh, hobbies, Michelle says, middle school, secretly read BSC books at home because they were comforting and I didn't have a, have a ton of friends or other hobbies besides babysitting. Now, read BSC books at home because they are comforting, but now I post photos of me doing so in my Instagram stories. I also now do improv, which is very much like babysitting. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that. <laughs> Uh, that is a good parallel. You don't, you don't, wait, you've done a lot of babysitting. You don't see how improv is very much like babysitting. No, I like to say no. And I, the number one rule of improv is to say yes. You don't say no a lot when you're babysitting. Well, I like to say, I like, I like to say no in general, but I come around eventually. It's just like, I love to say no. I just like to be persuaded. Yeah. I do think babysitting is, childcare is a lot of yes anding. Yeah. I think probably. And I also like to say no. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Michelle. For the, This is not our mine and Anne's friend, Michelle, by the way. This is Michelle in Michigan. This is a oh, yes. good, person good I don't player, know. A Michelle with two L's. So what do you think? What, I'm what, getting some Marianne vibes. Okay. Kind of initially. Because of the wanting to be trendy, but but being more bland? Or because of the embarrassment? Where, where you get, or the, just the romanticness? I think all of those things. Okay. I mean, actually, thinking back to our conversation around where would they be now, I feel like <laughs> Anna Martin always gives the answer like Marianne would have been a teacher, but we were like, uh, I don't know, after two economic collapses, she might not have been. And so this like right. got a degree in elementary education before being like, fuck this and changing careers. Yeah. I could totally see that being a Marianne thing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm definitely the the I don't give a fuck sort of speaks, I think, both to Dawn and to Claudia. Yeah. 
that kind of confidence and the like I could see Don being on a big like you know menstruation liberation campaign and like mm-hmm. forcing for people sure. to talk about cramps on purpose yeah so not, not just for not caring but for like another agenda yeah definitely um, I don't know that I get much Claudia aside from because I think yeah. like the I don't give a fuckness of Claudia like lends itself to her trendiness rather than mm-hmm. like I'm not saying that very well no I know what you're saying like it doesn't it it's it's about individual expression and not about like a, an agenda or like your personal your feelings in that moment necessarily yeah okay which babysitter would be in drama club like in high school I could see Mallory mm, yeah definitely maybe more behind the scenes but still like into it and a nerd yeah um, so I think there's some Mal there and that, you know, it's again, that's the performing thing. We still haven't managed to separate Mal Jesse and this book certainly did not help us do it. Absolutely so not. I think that the Mal Jesse hybrid is, is there with the performing. Mm-hmm. Not much Christy, especially with the really early period. Yeah. And Vintage all the crushes. Girl is also Marianne. Yeah. yeah well, which one of them who's crushing on the gay boys? Uh, you know, if we assume the implied straightness that the the series as written implies, I know there's a billion thoughts about the queerness of the BSE in general, and I'm not disagreeing with that. But like as written on the page, they are all at least a little bit interested in boys. So mm-hmm. who's the one who let's let's say they actually are interested in boys wherever they land on this the spectrum of sexuality? Who's the one that's crushing on boys that will not be interested in them? My, I mean, I would love it if Logan was gay. They'd be so much more. He'd be so much more interesting. Yes, because presumably he would either not be gaslighting Marianne, or he would stop at some point. <laughs> right, he would have a good reason to have been doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we. I don't know enough about like Mal and Jesse's kind of romantic or like approach to romance because I could see that, especially with Mal being a sort of budding writer. I could see mm-hmm. her having a kind of like attachment to a version of romance that might lend itself to mm-hmm. mooning over yeah. Un- unavailable. Yeah. I, I closeted. <laughs> right. Crutches. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. I I'm, I'm thinking it's a little bit of a Christie thing, but I think that's just me personalizing it. <laughs> like, uh, you mean it's an Esme thing. <laughs> right. And okay. we're not giving Michelle a percentage of Esme, right? We're Michelle, just you're her. actually 20% Esme. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at some point, it's going to basically boil down to us giving people percentages of ourselves. <laughs> Anne's like, that's Claudia, aka. Yeah. yeah I, so I think Marianne, Dawn, and Mal Jesse are, are relatively high. Okay. And then I'm and then- lower. Like, I'm not, I don't know about Stacy. Yeah, I don't really see any Stacy. Like, would Stacy do drama? Stacy's a nerd. Maybe. Yeah, maybe if it was like a good, good enough. Well, role. except I don't think Stacy would describe herself as a nerd. No. She's a straight A student, but she's not a nerd. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not seeing a ton of Stacy. Although, Stacy would definitely meet her husband when he was dressed like a cat stripper at a mutual friend's bachelorette party. Oh, yeah. That is a Stacy McGill move. And I can't believe we just like, Swept over that. So I feel That's like that true. gives her more Stacey than Claudia right there. Yeah. Okay. So what's top? Is Dawn top or Marianne? Or are they tied? I think they're tied. 
This to me okay. seems like a transit, like a transition from Marianne to Dawn. I see. Like she started as more of a Marianne. Yeah. Okay. Least of Christy and Claudia. Mm-hmm. Is there any Christy? I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe this series of crushes on unavailable friends that is also Esme. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we have a lot of evidence for that in the books, though. I mean, Christy's main crush so far has been as somebody who's, like, totally interested in her, and she has things in common with him. And Yeah, Bart. Oh, so hot. You want to just talk about that for a few minutes? This episode's a little thin. We could just spend some time talking about Bart Taylor if you want, even though he wasn't in this book. That's okay. I'll wait for Anne to come back to talk about Bart. Okay. So zero (laughs) She wouldn't want to miss it. (laughs) Five percent. Or wait, zero Christy. Five percent Claudia? Yeah. Okay. And then you think the Dawn and the Marianne, so the Dawn is a little higher now and the Marianne used to be higher. You know, your big, mm-hmm. your real big five does change across the course of your life. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Like 70 Dawn, 65? Where are you going? 65. Okay. And like 60 Marianne? Yeah. Okay. And then 50 Mel Jesse? Mm-hmm. Less? No, I think 50. Okay. And then like, what, like 30 Stacy? 35? Yeah, 30. Okay. Beautiful. There we go. We'll post it for you, Michelle. Thanks for writing in. Sixty-five Dawn, sixty Marianne, fifty Mal Jesse, thirty Stacy, five Claudia, and nothing Christy. Just a yeah. little bit of Esme because you like the gay boys. <laughs> if only you had met Gary dressed as a cat stripper at a bachelorette uh, party. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Anne isn't here to talk about Claudia's candy, sadly, um, but we don't get a lot of it in this book anyway. They're not. There's a lot of babysitting in this book. Did you notice? There's a lot. Yeah, they don't have very many so Boring. Yeah, um, but she has tasty cakes and cheese doodles. And then we didn't talk about the the party that they throw. So even though Derek only oh, comes yeah. back for like five seconds, they throw him a surprise going away party, and it's a breakfast party. And I did relate to this, like, A, I thought, no, okay, Emily just made a disgust face. You didn't like the breakfast party? I don't want to have a party at breakfast. (laughs) But you're not eight. You don't think it sounded fun? I think this was the only good part of the book for me was the fun breakfast party. I don't know. I'm not a morning person. It takes me a minute to, like, swing into the thing, get into the swing of the day. It's not for (laughs) 32-year-olds. I've never been a morning person. (laughs) Okay. And Claudia brought donuts. Yeah, I do like a donut. She was very emphatic about that. And then Christy made them all wear robes so the kids could see where the babysitters were. And I, like, super related to it. And she wanted them all to wear curlers in their hair. And they were like, no, Christy. <laughs> and I was like, that would have been better. No, Esme, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, not a lot of tallies in this book either. Um mm. Not surprisingly, because just not much is going on. But I think this is also true to Jessie not being super um, mm-hmm. judgy. So she gets one, we get one bossy, but she's saying some people think that Christy's bossy. She's not saying it herself. Mm. Um, one sensitive, one shy about Marianne and one health food for Dawn. But that's it. Hmm. Not much indeed. No. Okay. Weirdest line. Yeah. I had two that I liked. I really like that the teacher... In PS 162, it's called Miss Pedagogue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, incredible. It's a little on the nose. I don't feel like that would pass out of a writer's room. Like, No. And I also like on page 46, Derek is having a fight with the triplets at the Pike's house. And he shouts Anvil Head as one of his insults. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I thought, you know what's funny? It's not on my list, but I was like, Emily's going to like Anvil Head. Mm-hmm. Like, but like Cactus Brain and Pizza Breath, I was like, eh, whatever. But Anvil Head yeah. is so weird. Why would you call someone that? Yeah, I don't know. Why does he know what an anvil is? is he, he's eight. No, eight-year-olds know what anvils are from oh. Looney Tunes. Oh. Anvils come up a lot when you watch cartoons, and then they leave adult life in the 21st century. I didn't watch cartoons that much. You watched, like, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, yeah? Like, barely. But do you remember anvils? They fall on the head? Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. See? Anvil head. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. I had two. <laughs> One was related to the breakfast party. How are we going to decide what the episode's called with only two people? I know. All right. It just occurred to me. <laughs> okay. Continue. Okay. I had two also, so we'll have four contenders. We'll have to eliminate. So... They're, it's late Saturday morning for the party and they're figuring things out. And Claudia calls Christy from the donut shop and asks her to decide whether kids will like chocolate or coconut donuts better. And then Christy snaps at her and she says, who cares, Claudia? And then as she gets off the phone, she goes, get them all. Get an assortment with an exclamation point. And I just I liked how like drill sergeant she is and like how Claudia is like hemming and hawing about which was the right one. I thought that was very funny. Yeah. And then. Get an assortment. Get an assortment. Um, and then the other one that I really liked was the beginning of chapter four. It's um, Jesse's first babysitting job for Derek. And she says, before I knew it, it was Wednesday afternoon and time for me to babysit for Derek Masters, all caps, exclamation point. And then after that, the new like a new sentence starts, only there's no capitalization because Derek Masters was an interjection. And it just says, and his little brother, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that was really funny. And poor, poor Todd. There is another master's child. He's in this sometimes. Yeah, he's um, cute. Yeah. So, um, so those are my contenders. And his little brother Todd. And get an assortment. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. How will we decide? I don't even remember your first one, so I feel like that's out. <laughs> Rude, Miss Pedagogue. Oh yeah, it's good. I don't know. Okay, which one do you like least? Mm, and his little brother Todd. Fine. Okay. I What do you like least? Anvil pedagogue? Head. Okay, fine. Fine. No, it's a tight race between okay. get an assortment and Miss Pedagogue. Should we do a mashup? <laughs> get, get an, an assortment, assortment Miss pedagogue. pedagogue. Yeah, it's bad. Um, I don't care that much. I like them both. So you can choose which you want. I leave well, it to you. This feels like an impossible choice because I can pick yeah. the one that I came up with. <laughs> Or I can pick the one you came up with. <laughs> yeah. Well, but so I opened your eyes to it in a new way, probably. Just like you opened my eyes to Miss Pedagogue. Yeah. Well, you think everything Christy says is funny. So <laughs> <laughs> not untrue, but also not entirely true. It's so true. I'm not even making fun of you right now. I'm just stating a fact. <laughs> I think what Claudia says is really funny, too. I think Claudia is also very funny. That's the other thing. Jesse's not funny in this book. Sorry. Yeah, just one more thing to complain about. That's like unbelievable. One of, her, one of her traits is she's supposed to be funny, and she's not funny at all in this book. Mm-hmm. Which one do you want? I don't care, really. I want Miss Pedagogue. Great. Because <laughs> it's weird. Also, it's an homage to the show we want to hear more about. Is it how problematic is it? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what Good promise point. is it bringing us of a multicultural, you know, flourishing capitalist society? Where right. there's no injustice. Right. Yeah. Something that totally seems plausible when we're <laughs> recording this on January 10th, 2021. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. What a world. What should we pizza toast to? 
We could pizza toast a donuts. Mm, I do like a donut. So do I. We could pizza toast to dance moms. Uh, Mallory's English accent the first time Derek Masters comes to the Pike's house. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. She. What does she say? Wait. She says one one thing to, to him that's really funny. Hold on. You have it to do it in an line. English accent. Oh, boy. Okay. I apologize deeply to all of our listeners in the UK. Hello. I'm <laughs> Mallory Pike. You must be Derek. I'm so pleased that you could come visit us in our home today. Oh, that was really bad. <laughs> I like <laughs> it. <laughs> I will not be editing that out. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We miss you, Anne. See you soon. You have to pizza toast. Oh, pizza toast to Mallory's English accent. <laughs> to Mallory's English accent. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anne and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for.